All right, chapter four, verses one through 11. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's a loaded verse there. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, uh, angels came and were ministering to him. Okay. Um, Have you heard this story before, other than just now? Um, It's a fantastic story. And whenever we run across the number 40 and the word wilderness in the Bible uh, in a text, what the writer wants you and me to do is to travel backwards into the story of Israel's escape from slavery in Egypt and their subsequent 40-year run in the wilderness. That's what the writers want us to think about. The number 40 in the Bible is not always literal. It simply is a number to indicate these pivotal, pivotal, transformative experiences. So you can, do a word, you can do a number search on this in your Bible and find that anytime 40 days is mentioned or 40 years or something like that, what you find is the person or the people are going through a very transformative experience. So it's a number that indicates change. It's a number that indicates this emerging difference that's coming. Wilderness also, the word wilderness uh, is... Yes, the wilderness, but also symbolic of this arena of testing. To to emerge again changed and reshaped is to come back from the wilderness. The wilderness in the Bible is never a positive uh, word. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, and Jesus and his disciples took some R&R in the wilderness. It's always, I'm going into the wilderness, and everyone thinks, ouch, there's nothing good about that. And so when Both 40 and wilderness are together. We know that what we're witnessing is hard. It's trying. And it's a chamber of struggle is what we're walking into. Now, we have a term for this in the Christian world, and it's the word season. Going through a season. It's funny how we dumb down the very, you know, hell on earth experiences. Going through a season. What's your season? My marriage is falling apart. That's not a season. That's a wilderness experience. I just lost my job. Not a season. It's desperate. Words matter, people. Uh, So whatever Jesus is going to go through in the wilderness, in this story, we know that it will not be easy. This is what Matthew is doing. As with Israel... And it's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus, too, will struggle to trust God, to trust the calling on his life, and to remain faithful 
to his purpose here on earth. Now, normally, this scene in the Bible is used to render up a template for how we should engage and encounter temptation. And there's value to that. The only thing anybody can come up with is, quote, scripture. And that's what Jesus does. It's also what the tempter does. It's very interesting. And there's value in that for sure. But there's also something more profound and primal happening in this story. And that's what I want us to see today. The word for tempt in our text is not a great translation. The Greek word is more connected to the word testing, to be tested rather than tempted. But we understand that in our English sense, that those can be very connected. But in in this story, it's about being tested. And we are, just to give you a formula, if you think about it across the two terms, we are often tempted. Temptation comes at our weaknesses, and a testing is directed at our strengths. Does that make sense? And what Jesus is being confronted with in the wilderness is a series of tests, not on his weaknesses, but on his strengths. It's, it's in the title that the tempter gives him, you, if you are the son of God. That's a strength, by the way. That's not, that wins. That's not a weakness. So you can just substitute that. If you are the leader of this company, if you are the father to your children. These are not weakness points. These are strengths. You're holding power in some way. And so the temptations, the testings come at Jesus' strengths and the strength of who he is. Now, the three testings here, I guess they're important, uh, but they all mirror the three primary testings of Israel in the wilderness, their hunger, uh, their trust in God, and their propensity to walk away from God and to worship other things. All three of those uh, exist in the Exodus story, this physical, spiritual, and uh, religious, and also societal temptations to be influential. And what Jesus is confronted with is not what's bad about those things. Being hungry is not bad. Being faithful is not bad. All, All that's all good. What he's being confronted with is his own strength and power and station to assert his influence in each of those. So now you can sort of see it. Hey, you're hungry, Jesus. It's been 40 days. Uh, last night, Alden, we, were going, we weren't going over this. I don't do that in my home. Everybody sit down. We're going to go over my sermon. But, uh, oh, Dad. Uh, you know, but I, I said, I'm doing the temptation story. And uh, Alden said something about 40 days. And he's like, can you survive that long? And then my eight-year-old goes, a human can survive a little more. You know, she always has to win. Uh, but if you take the hunger one just as an example, Lord, you know, Jesus, you're hungry. Why don't you just turn these things into food? It's just a simple illustration of like, why don't you circumvent the process? Why don't you take care of yourself? And so he's tempted to do for himself, and if we're thinking about Israel's story, what God did for Israel in the wilderness. He's running, he's tempted to run ahead of God. And so that is the chief test, to circumvent the process and to run ahead of what God is doing. And all of these are aimed at Jesus' abilities to conquer, to assert himself too soon, and with, uh, with less reliance on God and more on himself. There's nothing wrong here about 
Uh, there's nothing in here about his weaknesses at all, but about his skills. And let me just say this before we move into what this means for us. All of us are most susceptible to downfall, not uh, at the negligence over our dealings with our own weaknesses, but at the arrogance of our own strengths. Now, I'll say this at the end, but let me say it now. The Bible seems to have zero concern for our weaknesses. It seems to be quite fixated on our strengths. And so the title of this last section is The Strength Finder. Thank you. No one reads anymore. Uh, what's going on in our world right now, and I think it's, there's some positive to this, but I call it the weakness trend. The weaknesses trend. We're very much more open than ever to talk about our weaknesses. This is where I'm broken. This is where I'm not enough. This is where I need help. This is a good thing. It's totally a good thing. Uh, and so you can see this. It, it's, it becomes sometimes virtue signaling, uh, but to post, to talk, to assert, hey, this is where I'm weak. And it becomes sometimes a way to gain upper hand, an upper hand in situations. But there is this trend, and it's a healthy trend in the sense that we are now a little bit more comfortable, maybe more so than ever, at exposing our weaknesses. And that's a good thing. But the issue is, it doesn't really make us better. The more dangerous arena is not our weaknesses, but it's where we are strong. In the wisdom literature of uh, Israel, and wisdom is such a key component in faith development and life development in the, in the nation of Israel. And there's so much wisdom literature that fills our Bibles. Um, but in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, maybe you know this, uh, or, and maybe you didn't know this was Scripture. But the writer says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a what? A fall. I don't remember what year this was or who they were playing, but we had been given tickets, my son and I, to go to the Chick-fil-A national something football thing on New Year's Eve. And we went, and it was Texas A&M playing some other school. Um, and the quarterback was uh, Johnny Menzel. And if you're not familiar, there's, there's probably a reason for that. But this was many, many years ago. And Johnny Menzel was known for, if he made a good play, he would do the money you know, because he came from money. And uh, this was his, uh, you know, his point of pride. And he would do it every, I mean, and we had great seats. So we, not only could we hear what was going on in the field, we could see straight in front of us this display of, I'm amazing because I have money. I don't know what this means. And Alden, my son, goes, what is he doing? And I was like, I don't know, but it's not going to work out. What do you mean? It never works out for these people, you know? Are you with me on that? And it didn't. I mean, Cleveland? Cleveland. Didn't work out. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Whatever our greatest strengths are, this is what the wisdom literature is saying. Therein lies the potential for our greatest failure. The Enneagram be damned. That is all about our weaknesses. What the Bible is most concerned with 
is where we are strong and where we hold power. And so maybe you're influential, you know? Maybe you have a lot of power in your work arena or in your social structure with your friends. Or maybe you wield a sense of influence in your marriage and you know it. Jesus would say, be careful because that's the strength that you have and that will be the thing that takes you down. Or maybe you're very intelligent and I don't mean because you've, told, you've been told that, but you are. You've got all the credentials to show it and you know this about yourself and you love this about yourself. You, uh, every journalist in the corporate media is this person. And you can tell, because when they begin their response, they always say this word, look. Just listen for it. Look, as if to say, hey, idiot, let me explain this to you. Maybe listen to yourself this week. Do you respond that way? Look, let me help you in your ignorance. Or maybe you are beautiful. You're good looking. You're a tasty dish. (laughs) And it could just be because people have told you that. Or because whatever the mix of your parents were, it just, boom, you just came out, wow, nothing you have to do about it. And you're just beautiful, striking. Jesus would say, I mean, Jesus would say, to quote Carrie Fisher, because he can do that in a time continuum. (laughs) Carrie Fisher once said, look, youth, look. (laughs) See? I did it. We preach to ourselves. You're just along for the ride. Hopefully you pick up something. But Carrie Fisher once said, uh, youth and beauty are not accomplishments. And that's very wise. But maybe you walk around with this sense of beauty and attraction. Maybe you're wealthy. I know some of you are like, not me. But some of you are. And it's not that you're wealthy, but you like that. And that makes you feel a sense of superiority over those who aren't and those who struggle. And Jesus would warn that it will not be the poverty of your life that will be the downfall. It will be your wealth. I say this in all my wedding ceremonies. It's not the poor times that ruin a couple. It's the rich times. Or maybe it's simply your... uh, the way you live your life. And this is the thing that we're all guilty of. Everybody assumes the way they do life is the right way to do life. And that the way you do your life, everyone else should just fall in line, you know? So you work the hardest. You're the hardest worker. Your response all the time is, I'm really busy. And that's your source of strength. And Jesus would say, great, be careful. Be careful. It's not our weaknesses that matter so much with Jesus. It's 
in the arenas where we excel. The much-needed Me Too and Time's Up movements are not directed at a man's weaknesses, but at his unchecked sense of strength and power, his sense of superiority, and the ability to do whatever he wants to do. When I think about the civil rights movement, what is the civil rights movement but a concerted push against uh, man's own sense of superiority? It's not against the propensity to hate and to categorize people as less than, but it has more to do with a push back against man's own sense of superiority based on race and gender. And so our experience with temptation resides mostly at the doorsteps of our strengths, what we're good at, not really with our struggles. And as I said before, Jesus seems, in the Bible in general, seems to be way less concerned with our weak spots and more with our places of confidence. Does that make sense? For Jesus, and this is the big switch of Scripture in general, it does this a lot. It's the, it's the flip that the Bible does to us. It takes the philosophies and the ways of thinking and it flips it. And it talks about our strengths as our true weaknesses. You know? I mean, Jesus isn't looking at us and thinking, man, I wish they could really fix that problem with insecurity. Or I wish they could really deal with that problem of anger. Or this almost inability to overcome addiction. These are weak spots, of course. They break us. We live broken because of these. But nowhere in the scriptures is Jesus pointing out the weak spots and saying, if you could fix that, then we'd all be good. But no, he points at the things that we are amazing at. He says, be careful. And the Bible comes along and says, what we find as our strength ends up becoming our downfall. It ends up becoming the weakness. The book of Judges in the Old Testament, which I know we're all reading this time of year. Um, when I teach this to my students at, at the school, we, we spend about six seconds on it. And I'm going to do it for you right now. I'm like, every story in this short book is exactly the same. And it goes like this. Israel is arrogant. They become self-reliant. Then they fail, and then they cry out to God. God goes, okay, and then they get saved, and then they become arrogant and self-reliant again, and then they cry out to God, and then God goes, okay, and he helps them. That's what it does all the way through, and then it ends with, and there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own mind. That's it in a nutshell. It's this work in the Old Testament that reminds us of how it is for all of us. We become arrogant and self-reliant, and then we trip, and then we find ourselves alone, and we cry out to God, save me, and he does, and then things begin to get better, and we become arrogant, and we become self-reliant, and then we fail. Do you see this happening? It's this cycle, but the thing is, the cycle of this weaknesses, our strengths becoming weaknesses, is the great uh, volley and the cycle of uh, failure and forgiveness over and over and over again. That when we are strong, when we allow our strengths to become our downfall, 
we, we begin to recognize them as our weaknesses. And it's in our weaknesses, which were our strengths, that we find grace to move on. Let me close with this. The early Christians uh, found a lot of comfort in this temptation story. And we see this in the letter to the Hebrews in the, the New Testament toward the back. And the whole letter of Hebrews is, is fascinating. It's just this retelling of what Jesus has done. And it likens Jesus to a, a high priest within the Jewish religious culture. And this is what the writer says. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What we see here is an ancient and early interpretation of this story of Jesus experiencing all the same things that you and I experience, and yet he does so successfully. And I guess in there, there is a template for us, but the template is not so much how we respond to temptation, but the template is more about how we assess ourselves and identifying what about what is it about our lives that we see as too big to fail and taking inventory of that. And this is what I love about the season of Lent. It takes us on this journey of self-assessment. And maybe some of you are fasting from things, uh, and you'll fail. But that's the point. The point of Lent is to experience more failure than ever before. To go deep inside of ourselves and to really assess where we are. And to start to see the cracks and the things that we thought were unbreakable. And to really do a check on who we are. Nobody wins Lent. God does. God wins in this case. He wins over our failures. Amen? But your failures, in the eyes of God, maybe not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God, your failures do not reside in your weaknesses. You need to leave here knowing that. That's not the concern. The concern for God is pride, arrogance, being too big to fail. That's the assessment that we must make. Let me pray for you and we'll sit in reflective quiet uh, for a few moments and then we'll take communion together.